Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors and minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises, and most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Welcome to the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. On today's show, Jared and I are talking to Philip Kren. We're talking about Elasticsearch and the problem it solves, where it came from, and where it's at today. We discuss the query language, what it can be compared to, whether or not it's a database replacement or a database complement. Elasticsearch versus Elastic, the company, which is a very big company, by the way. We also talked about the details behind Elastic's plan for doubling down on open to open up XPack, which is their open code paid add-on features to Elasticsearch, the implications of this on their business model, and what changes will take place at the code and the license level on GitHub. So we're here to talk about Elasticsearch and... I don't know about you, Adam, but I got to claim a little bit of ignorance Maybe. on Elasticsearch. And I'm, I'm guessing you as well, because I've never touched the thing. Um, I've, I've heard some hand-waving on the internet. I'm very conservative in my data stores and my search engines. So I haven't actually played with it, but I'm excited to learn about it. And we have uh, Philip Kren here to talk us all about it. Uh, so Philip, let's start with uh, Elasticsearch, what it is, where it came from, what problems it's solving and then we'll get into where it's at today and where it's going. Right, so um, it's based on, the, the base library we're using is Apache Lucene, but that's not really the story we normally try to tell. Like there is a kind of cute or interesting story around it. Our currently CEO, um, Shai, he started Elasticsearch uh, back in the days. Um, and it actually, the first iteration wasn't even called Elasticsearch, it was called uh, Compass. And Compass was kind of like the tool uh, for his wife to search her recipes because she wanted to be a chef and she had a ton of recipes she needed to search. And he started building a system to make that possible. She is, by the way, still waiting for that recipe search solution uh, because he kind of over-engineered that. Um, and <laughs> so he built Compass 1 and then he found out, well, that's kind of like a dead end. And then he redid the entire thing and it was com uh, Compass 2. And then a third iteration, which is kind of the lucky number, obviously, it wasn't called Compass 3, but that he called Elasticsearch. And that was back in 2010 when he first released that. That's kind of how it all got started. And what his idea was about that, that search should be kind of an ubiquitous uh, solution, that it needs to scale, um, that it should be simple to use. And that's kind of like where Elasticsearch started from. It was like scalable hmm. right from the beginning and it had an easy to use REST API and it should just work. And that was kind of like the promise or the start where it all began. Gotcha. So Apache Lucene, I think it's a Java uh, uh, project, started all the way back in like the 90s, right? Like late 90s, early 2000s. How does that fit into the Elasticsearch 
story? Lucene is kind of an incredible piece of work. Uh, so a lot of work has gone into that already, and it's very mature. So it's kind of, if I say the de facto uh, search solution that everybody is using or the standard is maybe a bit of an overstatement. Uh, but it is kind of the mm-hmm. most commonly used base library uh, that people are using for full text search. The problem is it's really just a library. So yes, it's written in Java and you could include that in your own Java application, but it's really a library and you just have to call it very explicitly. And the API is not the most user-friendly or, or nice to get started with. So that's not really what you, you want to do. It's a bit bare bone, um, but it has all the necessary pieces. And what Elasticsearch then did basically around that, it does the distribution and the replication of your data. And it provides a query DSL and a nice REST API to the outside. Yeah, so as somebody who's not a Java developer with Elasticsearch, it's also Java, but you don't have to care about that because it's just a it's a REST-based API right. that any any client library can speak to without having to include you know Java into embedded into your application. Totally. Um, so yes, since Lucene is based on Java, Elasticsearch is Java as well. Um, but kind of Shai already saw that initially he had it. The entire system uh, compass very tightly coupled to the Java ecosystem, but he saw that that is not really what people want. And if you just bind yourself to one ecosystem, it's kind of very limited in the long run. So with a nice REST API, and then we have drivers or clients for all the major programming languages, it's much easier to get started and have kind of like that base system that everybody can use. And then everybody can just build whatever they want. And we really don't care what is your programming language, like whatever makes sense for your product product or project um, that is fine by us uh, we're just trying to provide the right client and then you build awesome stuff with it so he set out to build a recipe search and he ended up building a quite a large company called elastic which is where you work yes. tell us about elastic versus or in, and elastic search give us the the lines between the open source project the company and how all that shakes out right so um Initially, it was um, shy, and I, I always imagined him uh, sitting in his bedroom coding day and night. And at my job before Elastic, we were already using Elasticsearch, and we, we were always like curious like how that one guy could produce so much code, and he was like answering all the issues and writing the documentation and still coding so much every day. And at some point later on in 2012, he joined forces uh, with three other guys um, to start a company. And back then, since the product was Elasticsearch, the company was also called Elasticsearch. Since we have then added a few more products uh, along the way, uh, we had to rename the company at some point since, well, it was not only about Elasticsearch anymore, even though Elasticsearch is still kind of the core of everything and everything else is built around that and around search kind of. But the company is now, yeah, I think we were about 820 or something like that, um, though it's changing pretty much every day by now. Um, And we've kind of built the various other tools around it. So people might be familiar with the Elk stack, um, Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana. So Logstash is the thing um, to get data and transform it and then put it either into Elasticsearch or some other system. Uh, And then Kibana for the visualization part. Um, We always say we want to democratize data. Basically, you have a nice browser-based tool where you can just explore your data, build dashboards, and just see what you have there. Later on, Mm. we even added the beats, uh, which are like lightweight agents, forwarders, shippers, whatever you want to call them, uh, written in Go, to collect uh, log files or system metrics or ping systems. 
Um, and that's when we uh, renamed the entire thing again back from the Elk stack and we're now, now trying to call it the Elastic stack. Since, well, our products are always about kind of being scalable and Elk stack or whatever we first we tried to call it Belk or Elk B because, well, you know, Elastic Social Oxygen Kibana plus Beats. So out of those four letters, <laughs> the only thing we could make up uh, was Belk or Elk B. And we, we even had a logo for that. So there was like... The B with the L horns, um, uh, which was a cute idea, but since we're always about scaling, uh, we figured out this is not really that scalable because if we add any other open source products, we would need to redo the entire branding again and making up new animals, which whatever letter we would get afterwards, uh, it would not get any easier. Typical naming. So yeah, now we're trying to do uh, or call it the Elastic Stack. And internally, every time we see uh, when somebody is doing a meetup uh, or some other event and calls it elk, uh, we raise the internal elk alert. Uh, and somebody will reach out and say, hey, this is super cool, uh, but we try to call this thing now Elastic Stack. But elk alert is pretty in in interesting because we always get called change log or change capital L log, all sorts of formations of it. And we need a, a, a change log uh, thing, Jerry. We need to do this. Like an actual log? Yeah, that something a... that logs the fact that people are saying it incorrectly. I love that. <laughs> but naming, jeez. So for, for Logstash, we had actually the original logo was a wooden log. And people found it super cute, though. Now everything is kind of like, it's just letters. And yeah, at some point, as you grow as a company, um, kind of the, the cuteness uh, has to take a step back, I guess. And you, you need to grow up a little and try to be more professional. The Elastic, the company, supports um, Elasticsearch and these other services as well. Is the model basically you're hosting around the infrastructure or is there also like an open core thing? How does it break out in terms of the open source projects? I didn't realize they're plural now versus the proprietary stuff. Building a sizable company is kind of a challenge uh, if you're an open source company. Um, we're actually trying to do kind of a bit of everything. So we provide Elasticsearch and Kibana as a service, which we call Elastic Cloud. Um, but we also have this open core model where you get the core features um, as open source and you can just do whatever you want. Uh, it's Apache 2 licensed, um, go crazy, do whatever you want. Um, but we do have some commercial uh, plugins around that. We don't have a special commercial version like some of our competitors or other vendors in the database space have, would have like a community version and an enterprise version. We don't really believe in that model. Um, we have like, it's really plugins that you plug into um, that core system. So even the paying customers, they're using the same open source base, uh, but you just add some functionality on top of that. One thing that I've, I said, I've, I've read some hand waving. Most people, when I see Elasticsearch come up, uh, it'll be somewhere along the lines of, hey, try Elasticsearch, and then the person will say, well, I don't really need advanced search, or I don't need that much for my search, which maybe Adam's heard me say that to him sometimes. And then they'll say, Elasticsearch is not just for search. And then they'll go into, that's why I say the, the hand starts waving, and I'm sure they provide ample evidence for that, but I usually uh, close tab. Um, does that ring true for you? Is like Elasticsearch like supposed to, yeah, <laughs> is, <laughs> they begin evangelizing, and I, I duck out. Um, is Elasticsearch more than just for search? Is it a like a full-on database? What's like the 
core use case that it really slays at? Yeah, I'm, I'm very careful about that, the term database, because people have a very specific expectation of what a database does. And I'm not sure we're 100% that, uh, since we're, first and foremost, we're a research platform. Um, but we kind of want to be the data platform for lots of different use cases. So we started off with the full text search use case, but then we found these other use cases. And we always think about it that everything else that we add around it is also a search problem. So for example, logs, um, which is kind of one of the most common use cases, for us, storing the logs itself is not that helpful. What you actually want to do is you want to search them in the end of, again and, and find what is going on. And we're extending that further and we're doing metrics by now and we're doing more and more in the security space. And we're also adding or we, we always say we add to the family. Uh, we are adding more companies and features and products to the family. Um, so we have a machine learning component now and we're do, trying to do uh, the uh, application performance monitoring, the APM space as well, and adding that to the platform. So we're trying to, to broaden out. We're also doing search as a service now. Um, so we have been adding more and more companies around that and trying to get from the kind of like these core functionalities also more into the solution space because some people are a bit overwhelmed when you just say them or give them the options and say like here you have this building block and then you can build pretty much anything you want with that. But some are kind of like more okay I need a solution for this exact problem and we're also adding that uh, or going more and more into that direction to add more of these solutions. So you, you just need search for your website, for example. We want to provide you a solution to do that. You can totally build it yourself with the open source tools, uh, but we also try to give you more of a solution just to get to the result quicker. Or you want to build a logging platform, and you can totally build that yourself. But we're trying to get you started in a kind of quicker way. So we, we always have these building blocks, and Elasticsearch is kind of, I would still say the centerpiece and what everything else is built around that. Uh, but we're trying to give you more solutions uh, now that, well, we try to help you with the heavy lifting. It actually reminds me of something, and I'm not sure if you remember this conversation, but back on uh, GoTime 48, uh, Alexander Newman no or Neumann, I can't Neumann. recall how his name is pronounced. Neumann was talking about Restic, which is his backup solution. And he said something really poignant uh, during that episode. He said, nobody, nobody wants backups. Everybody wants restore. Yeah. And he got some pushback on that, but I thought it was so insightful because backups are actually a pain in the butt and they don't do, you know, they're, they're not the end game, right? They're just like a artifact that you have to deal with. And if they don't, if they can't restore, they're worthless. So what you really are after is the restore. And uh, you said something there, uh, Philip, which which made me think of that with regard to logging and like collecting the logs and having nope. them and storing them. And it's like nobody really wants logs, right? Nobody wants this stuff. What we want is uh, answers, right? Even with search, like search is and is a means to an end. We're looking for insights. We're looking to find that thing that you know. We're looking for that piece of data that we remember. Um, totally. and so it seems like what you're trying to do is build around that. These, like you said, these solutions, right? Like give us the solutions, not necessarily the tools. We, we're happy to cater for both because we have people in the open source space who say like, Oh, it's awesome. I want just this building block and then I can take it wherever I want. And then there are others who are like, Oh, I have this business need and I, I just want to get to the solution quickly. And we're happy to help both of them. Because, well, we are an open source company and we, we will try to always, or we are doing our open source work and um, you can just build anything you want around that. 
But then again, we try to broaden that out into the solution space. It makes sense too, going back to what you said with the fact that you're growing, which we haven't really talked much about the company size, not that we have to go too deep on it, but from what I understand, you got a pretty large company and your model is build open source tools, or at least it seems you can tell me if this is true or not, build open source tools that you can give freely out there. But at the same time, you're about solutions. So you take these open source tools that Jared or I or anybody else can freely grab, contribute to and use and build our own solutions. But you've gone ahead and as a company, as a mission, as a model, a business model, built solutions around your open source as paid for services to sustain yourselves and grow. Well, not, not only paid services. Um, some of these solutions are uh, also in the open source space. Um, really? So you can run okay. them yourself. Um, so, for example, the, the APM company that we acquired, um, that the, the base components for, for that are all in the open source space. Also because we, we kind of saw an opportunity there that they're like in the APM space, there is not that much open source. Uh, there are not that many open source solutions that you can use today. Um, but we think for us as a data platform, it makes a lot of sense to not only have logs and metrics, um, but also cover more things uh, like the, the tracing or APM functionality there. So we're trying to extend that. Um, but of course, if you don't want to host it yourself, we're happy to host it for you and provide it as a service. Or we have some more features um, around the entire thing that you might be interested in as a, an enterprise and you want to get our open core features or you also want support. But we're always uh, packaging support and the, the plugins that we have together. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a cloud computing platform built with simplicity at the forefront. So managing infrastructure is easy. Whether you're a business running one single virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean gets out of your way so teams can build, deploy, and scale cloud apps faster and more efficiently. Join the ranks of Docker, GitLab, Slack, HashiCorp, WeWork, Fastly, and more. Enjoy simple, predictable pricing. Sign up to pull your app in seconds. Head to do.co slash changelog, and our listeners get a free $100 credit to spend in your first 60 days. Try it free. Once again, head to do.co slash changelog. So Philip, when I when I said uh, as a database, you were very careful around that word, and, and you said that it's it's very much a search platform. Um, perhaps you could say it's a, a better complement to uh, to a data store or an additional you know, data store that you have in your application. I'd like to kind of take a, a small look at Elasticsearch, kind of from a micro perspective of uh, an application, maybe perhaps similar to Changelog.com, which is a a relational database on Postgres that has some search functionality that's just using Postgres's full text search and how an Elasticsearch would fit into that equation and really be a good complement and how it would do better at the search side of Postgres, but then do worse at kind of maybe the acid side or 
the relational side of Postgres? So um, with Postgres and uh, the full-text search features in Postgres, it's kind of an interesting approach because Postgres is first and foremost uh, the relational database. And then they have kind of added more and more full-text features around that just because you saw that, well, people need search at some point. Um, And that's fine. Um, It's just like... At the core of uh, Postgres, there is still kind of the relational database, whereas Elasticsearch for the search use case is really built on having as many features and being as scalable around search as possible. And it's not just an afterthought as with other products where they have like some full text search capabilities, which is often like, I'm not saying this is Postgres in specific, but like on some products we have the feeling that it's kind of like it's this checkbox where you say, oh, we do full text search as well. and, and then when you press further, it's like, ah, yeah, we're doing this one or two things. But if you really want to take advantage of it, um, then it's not going to help you that much. Um, but what Elasticsearch does is basically is whenever you store some text, um, we have this analysis pipeline. So, for example, we know something is an English text. And for an English text to search... Uh, you have some rules what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. For example, you do something like stemming. Stemming basically means you cut off, English is a very simple language in that regard, you cut off the ending of a lot of words because you don't really care if something is a singular or a plural. It's just you're just interested in the concept or you're not kind of concerned with the specific form of a verb. Uh, You're just really interested in the concept that you're looking for. Um, then you're normally kicking out stuff like stop words, which are like very common words that appear in nearly every sentence uh, or text, but they add very little meaning because and or an article um, would be in yeah nearly every sentence and you don't add any values. So that is what full text search does. And Elasticsearch is kind of elaborate mm-hmm. in that area. So we support a lot of languages. Um, we support a lot of features to uh, refine your search and that is where kind of the benefit of full text search would come in normally. Yeah, I think that's where I'm driving at is what can you enumerate those additional features that you're going to get by complementing your your relational database with a an elastic search uh, platform? Like what additional things is it going to give you in terms of search relevance? What search is generally giving you um, I'm always comparing it that databases are very much black or white. You're searching for something and then you get a hit or you don't get a hit. Uh, whereas search is much more shades of gray. It's more like how relevant is that to what I have entered? And it is normally a, a number that is being calculated in the background. I'm not sure how, how, deep, how deep you want to dive into that. But there are multiple factors that play into uh, calculating that relevancy. Um, for example... Um, so the, the one sentence I'm always using um, is from Star Wars, these are not the droids you're looking for. Let me see your identification. You don't need to see his identification. We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Move along. Move along. So if you store that in Elasticsearch, uh, the sentence, these are not the droids you're looking for, um, after removing the stop words and stemming, what remains is droid you look because these are kind of the three main concepts that might stick out or that people might be searching for. So these are not, they're all irrelevant, even the not. Like full text search doesn't generally understand what you're saying, like if this is positive or negative or what this is. It's kind of just matching on these terms. And 
droid you look are the three terms that would remain when you do the search. Depending on the sentence, uh, you will have more, more or fewer uh, stop words. And we will kind of extract these base concepts. And then since we're just uh, storing this stemmed version of the, the concepts that you have, the lookup afterwards is very fast. Because whatever you're searching for, um, uh, if you search for droid or droids, it doesn't really matter. The, this term you're searching for uh, runs through the same pipeline. So the stop words are removed, uh, we're doing the stemming, and then we can just go on the direct matches. And then you can see, oh, we, have, we are searching for droid, and this sentence contains droid. Um, then we're doing the, the calculation of how relevant the specific text is. For example, if a text contains droid uh, multiple times, that is probably more relevant for your droid search than if the droid term was only appearing once in the sentence. And then we're assuming, okay, droid is kind of like a relevant concept. Uh, we, we give a specific weight to that. And then we will also take into consideration um, how long a specific uh, element is. So for example, if your search term is appearing in a title, titles are normally very short, that is much more relevant than if it's just appearing in text body because that is much longer. And the, the, the base concept that is being applied there in the background, which I've tried to describe here, is called TFIDF, uh, the term frequency, inverse document frequency, uh, which is kind of calculating this relevancy. Uh, the algorithm has been slightly re refined by now. Um, it's called best match 25, BM25. Uh, so it's the 25th iteration of a best match algorithm. And this one is slightly better now. Um, and this is what is doing the, the heavy lifting behind the scenes uh, for your search. And if you compare that to, to the classical like search, uh, a lot of people are probably still doing in the relational database, um, A, you will have a hard time because this, this doesn't support anything like stemming. Um, this uh, also doesn't support anything like fuzzy search. Um, this doesn't support synonyms uh, and lots of other concepts. And if you have the wildcard in the beginning, so if you're doing the like percentage, whatever term you have percentage, um, you cannot even use an, an index, so your search will always be very slow because you're basically going through all the entries. Since you have the wildcard in the beginning, you cannot use the index because you don't even know where to start. You need to basically go through all the entries. Whereas full text search just extracts the right um, terms and then you basically check where are these terms, in which documents do I have appearances of these terms that I'm trying to find. And these different facets that I'm just, you know, thinking of like an equation like, you know, this factor plus that factor plus that factor equals like relevance rank or some sort of scoring. Is all that stuff, you know, tweakable, customizable, either at like Elasticsearch configuration time or maybe even at query time? with regards to how, how you get your results back? There are a lot of tweaks that you can apply. Uh, one, you can uh, tweak some parameters in the search, but a lot of the functionality is also like the way you store the data. For example, if you uh, resolve uh, synonyms at index time, that is some in index time feature. Or, or you could also do that at query time where you say these five terms are equal. And if the user is using any one of them, I want to find all the other four as well, or all the, all the other four places where I've, where these synonyms are appearing. Um, and you can build quite complex queries. Uh, we have a proper uh, query DSL um, that is giving you lots of power where you can say this must appear, this must not appear, this term should appear, or at least two of these three should terms should appear. Um, or you can say, I, I'm looking for either one of these terms, or if you have them as a phrase or in combination, like first 
one of them and followed by the other, then it should be ranked higher. So you have a lot of ways to actually tweak that. I suppose the the underlying BM25 algorithm, I would suppose that itself is not tweakable because, you know, after 25 tries, they probably are doing better than then, then I could go in there and you can still slightly tweak it um, if that is improving your search a lot is very much up to you or, or up to your use case um, we, we always like to say it depends uh, wh- whatever you're doing there it, it depends on what exactly you want to achieve I would just start kind of with the basics and try to expand from there and and not overthink it uh, from the start otherwise it can get kind of a bit complicated how well is full text search in Postgres, Jerry? Like, since we're asking him on the Elastic side how it compares, what are some of the things that you know about Postgres and its full text search that we like or dislike in terms of indexing or being able to, you know, query, you know, at index time or different things or being able to create indexes and all that stuff? Yeah, so you can do full text search to specific indexes in Postgres that allow it to not do full scans on, you know, specific queries. Um, and it does fuzzy search and stuff like that, but you can't, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you can do more than just that, but, um, you can't do all of these different relevance facets and stuff that he's talking about as far as I know. It's a specialized thing. Yeah. And that's, you know, Postgres's full text search is better than other RDBMSs, you know, uh, reputationally as being like slightly better than a like query. And so it gets you a little further. And in many cases, you know, for small data sets and small uses, like if you're not searching very often, it's fine. But in many cases, like you said, you know, you, you kind of know when you outgrow it, I think. And, and probably yeah. we're at a ca- point now, Adam, where we're just getting to the edge. I know we have a, a user story in our Trello board about search yeah. and some different ways that it should be matching, which it's not. And maybe I could stretch our current implementation to work that way. But at a certain point, it's going to become, especially as our data set you know, grows, it's just going to become less relevant uh, over time. And we'll probably end up reaching for something like Elasticsearch when that makes sense. Yeah, because it seems like there are things like plurals, which, Philip, it sounded like that's something that's just baked right into Elasticsearch where pluralization of nouns or different things, different terms, that comes for free. Uh, you don't have to be an exact match. I find that a lot of times I don't find something because I haven't, search precisely enough where it should be a little bit more forgiving to the to the user yeah and once you start growing um, probably you need to scale past what Postgres can give you so for example if you're searching on Wikipedia stick overflow or github behind that search box there is always Elasticsearch doing the hard work for you well hidden behind the scenes I was just trying to quickly google some of the actual like the feature list on Postgres and we're just picking on it because it's what we use Postgres is actually Pretty feature-rich. Yeah, being pretty good for RDMSs. But it does do stemming, it does do ranking, uh, supports multi-languages, has fuzzy search. So, I mean, it, it can take you a ways. And like I said, I've never used Elasticsearch. I've never used a, a search engine, like a thing that's built for search for any of my client work or for changelog.com because my data sets are small and my search needs are usually very trivial. And so that's why I said uh, kind of claiming ignorance on this because this is an area that I've never had to move into. Um, We're currently I, examining it. Yeah, I very much feel like you know it when you need it. <laughs> and um, Once you hit the wall, yeah, you, you will feel yeah, it. Yeah, you're kind of like, okay, we need something that, that these, you know, these results are getting less and less relevant all the time. And the other thing is that 
once you have Elasticsearch for one use case, there are all these other use cases where it's coming in handy. So we're trying to give you a broader tool to cover kind of a lot of base for that. Can you give some examples of like once you're using it, it can also do X, Y, or Z? Well, um, so once you're using it for search, um, then probably some analytics use cases come along. Like you have whatever kind of data your company is having or what you're trying to do, um, especially in combination with Kibana, um, you can then just store all of the data and build fancy dashboards by just clicking a few buttons, basically. Um, or you have logs. For example, who is visiting your website? You have, I don't know what, what your architecture is in the background, but if you have like an Apache or Nginx or something, uh, you might want to collect those log files and just see like who is visiting our site, which IP addresses, uh, which we can then translate to a, a region and do the GeoIP lookup, um, or what errors do we have? How many 404s? How many 500s? If we change anything on the website, like who has changed what and why are we suddenly getting more 404s? What is up with our system? Um, you could add metrics, for example, um, either business metrics, like how many people are coming to our website, how much time are they spending. But it could also be metrics like, okay, CPU and memory usage, or if you're using Docker or Kubernetes or whatever system basically you have. We're very good at collecting a lot of metrics uh, for that. And then you can, can bring all of that together in some dashboards, and then you get the, the overall view both of your business data, but also like on the IT system side, uh, what is my infrastructure doing? I was just thinking about the logging aspect. And so, you know, you said you don't know what our infrastructure is like. Well, we just push everything off to Paper Trail, uh, which is a service that we use. And they probably have they probably have Elasticsearch on the back end or some sort of search tool allowing us to then, you know, run our searches uh, through them. And so that got me thinking about Algolia and some of these other searches as a service. And I'm just curious how either Elasticsearch, like self-hosted uh, infrastructure or even, you know, Elastic's offerings, um, how they differ and measure up to, you know, other search options that are out there for developers to, to pick and choose from. So we're getting into two different areas here. Algolia for, for the search use case. Uh, we have recently acquired a company called SwiftType which is basically in exactly that area. And while their product was already based on Elasticsearch, um, they were just doing the crawling for you and just automating that uh, search process, basically. And mm. that is one of the solutions, like I've talked about solutions before. This is one of the solutions we want to add. Like it's still built on the open source uh, search platform that we have. But it's more of a solution that you you probably don't want to build that yourself because you totally could. And if you want to jump into that, uh, for a weekend project, yeah, you can totally do that. But maybe you just say, oh, I just want to, to have a site that is easily searchable. And I just want a solution. And I want my, site, my page to be crawled automatically. And maybe I want to fine-tune some searches. Uh, for example, if I enter this term, um, this should be the order that I want to have. Or I want to have some features um, where you need some fine-tuning. You can totally do that. But generally, it's just a solution that you can get started with. Swift type. I think I actually run that on my blog because it's a static site nice. and to add search they haven't they provided like free for small use like for personal use for a long time so i think maybe uh, i got elastic search uh power in my my blog searching and you didn't even and know I it didn't even know it <laughs> well hidden behind the scenes oh, this is awesome uh, love it love it well you said we're getting into different territories when you talked about logs versus like search for a database or content can you go into that more? Is does it end with SwiftType? 
for the log use case, uh, you can totally use uh, one of these kind of like smaller solution providers. Uh, but then again, it's one more island because, well, your search results basically sit on, on their solution or their site. And if you want to access anything, well, you're going there. And then for any other data like business analytics, you might have another island. Um, but it's just like lots of different islands which you then need to go each individually uh, to, to get the bigger picture. Um, our vision is more to have like one dashboard where you can show different things, uh, where you can have both like, okay, my website did that much revenue um, today, but also how did the latency of my website or how did the number of errors affect that? And it's just like one tool where you have the overall and bigger picture for that. Maybe you can go deeper into it because I see those the user types caring about those interfaces as one team but different cares. Meaning I care about search and I maybe as a marketer I care about terms or I care about relevancy or I care about people actually finding certain things or caring about content that's getting searched. But if I'm a developer, I care about logs or if I care about performance, maybe I'm a different sector. And it seems like those customer types or the the user types of those three different things in one dashboard. Um, why, why one dashboard? Well, obviously you, you don't have to. Like probably everybody will have the one big TV screen in their office which the, the custom metrics right. have that they are mostly interested in. But maybe you want to have like the, the bigger picture. How did one influence the others? Um, which right now, well, if you have different solutions for that, might not be all that easy. Um, and maybe also this kind of like siloed approach is a bit partly because you had the different tools and everybody was kind of like using their own view. Uh, and there was no easy way to, to bridge those different views. And I think that is kind of part of our vision to get the bigger picture and have a better integration between all of these different departments. Um, I, I hated the term DevOps. But I think this is kind of partly that idea that you break down those silos and that everybody is doing the thing that they have been doing for the past or in the past. Um, but you want to kind of like get beyond that and get to the kind of like the inherent value. Uh, where is the value in your company? It's not like doing one of these things, but it's kind of like getting the bigger picture and see how you can strive and what you can kind of push forward there. This episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. Check them out at GoCD.org or on GitHub at GitHub.com slash GoCD. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end with no problem. They support Kubernetes and modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use, and they have professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog.
So Philip Elastic recently published an article called Doubling Down on Open. In fact, Shay wrote this uh, February 27th of 2018. And I misread it. I thought it said doubling down on open source. And so we were going to talk about that. But it stopped short. It says doubling down on open. Uh, and it kicks off with him saying he's excited to announce that he will, y'all will be opening the code for your XPAC features, security monitoring, alerting, graph reporting, so on and so forth. But this is not open source. This is opening the code. Can you give us the distinction and tell us what's going on here? This is very much a definition problem. But I think the OSI has um, a definition of open source, uh, which says something like you can see the code, you can modify it, and it's freely available. And the freely available is kind of what we're not doing there. Um, Since, well, we're a large company, our salaries need to be paid somehow. So what we're doing with these features is um, you can get the source code on GitHub. We will have a special uh, directory, or there will be a directory um, or a folder with um, these uh, non-open source parts. So what is Apache 2 licensed right now? That will stay Apache 2 licensed, but we will add the code for the commercial features um, to GitHub, so you will be able to see everything that is going on there. But to use it in a production environment, you will still need a commercial license. So it's not open source, but I always say it's open code because you can see the code. Um, You can totally uh, open issues for that. You can even contribute patches back. We don't really expect anybody to contribute major features um, to our features that we will sell afterwards Um, but you can totally see what is going on Um, and that has multiple reasons Um, firstly um, especially around security people always want to see what they're getting and we with bigger customers sometimes they wanted to have an audit uh, of the source code behind that Um, well it's much easier to tell them well the code is open Uh, you just have a look there um, and you can really see what you're getting secondly for us internally um, it was kind of a problem because we always had uh, the open source uh, GitHub projects and then we had the XPEC ones where the commercial code was living. And then you always had the problem that how do you uh, work efficiently with that? You cannot do uh, atomic commits because part of the functionality might be in the open source part and part of uh, the fix that you're contributing is uh, in the comer- on the commercial side. How do you communicate the issues to the outside world because, well, the issue for the commercial part is in the private repository. So nobody can really see what is going on. And that will also make a the communication, but also the process for us internally much easier. And we just think it's the right thing to do. And everybody can see what they're getting. You will still need to pay for some or most of the features. Um, you can see that in the feature matrix, uh, what is uh, commercial and what is actually free to use but not available under an uh, open source license. So there might be some minor restrictions, like you cannot provide it as a service for customers, but you can totally run it for your own projects on-premise. So this is what we're trying to achieve there um, to kind of find a way to have or be an open company and build on open source, but still survive as a company and not end up like, I don't know, for example, RethinkDB, I think that was one of the products that was really widely loved, but it was just not enough commercial in there uh, that the company made the cut in the end. And I don't think that is benefiting anybody. So it is a fine line to walk, 
um, but we are doing our best to kind of be open and make users happy, but also have a sustainable business model and be around for a long time and build good products for a long time. Are you guys following in somebody else's footsteps on this or is this uh, paving a new path with regards to this particular layout that you come up with with the XPack um, features in a separate folder and the license you know, being in the way of it being completely open source? It's definitely not very common. Um, I think one or two other companies have, have looked into similar things. I think CockroachDB is one of them, um, though they're much smaller and much younger as a company. I'm not aware of any other um, more established or larger company doing that. And also from the legal perspective, um, it is very interesting. And we, on the one hand side, we really want to kind of like keep the, the legal uh, text there to a minimum and, and not scare anybody away. On the other side, uh, it needs to be waterproof so that nobody can kind of legally or find a loophole to legally uh, use our intellectual property uh, or commercial intellectual property uh, to, to make money themselves or just use it for free and, and work around that. Um, some people have had the concern that, well, um, you can just take the code, modify it and kind of like uh, comment out all the licensing restrictions. Um, though we don't assume that this is kind of an issue for any established company. Like anybody who is capable uh, of paying or at least in the Western world, I'm, I'm not sure how, how it's like in the rest of the world, like especially with the legal system there. Uh, but we don't see that as, that as a major risk uh, that somebody could just easily modify the source code now and run everything because it's open. Um, we have thought about that. We're not afraid of that. Uh, we're, just, we're still in the process of drafting that legal document or that license that we will add. And we're also kind of right now cleaning up the code for the opening because, well, you need to make sure uh, what was closed source code there are absolutely no credentials. There cannot be any references to customers. Uh, you don't want to have anything else that might be embarrassing. So there is kind of a, a cleanup process right now that the colleagues are going through. The legal document may be in process. What I can say for sure is that between this blog post doubling down and open and then also we're opening XPAC as well documented. So you're definitely doing a good job of like communicating your intentions, which I think is – probably the hardest hurdle to get over when making this kind of shift, especially something that can be this controversial or being be mistaken or mis you know, feel misled if not described carefully. You know, you're you're seeing why you're doing it, what's changing, when it's gonna change, how things will be affected. Like these two documents which will be in the show notes, um, greatly communicate your intentions here. We are really trying because even internally, people were confused at first. And after the announcement, somebody accidentally, like from within the company, even on the private account, uh, wrote like, oh, we're open sourcing XPAC. And it's like, no, that's ah. not what we're doing. <laughs> and we, we have, it's an ongoing fight. And obviously, um, mm -hmm. once it's being posted on Hacker News, everybody uh, goes crazy and posts whatever they think it means or doesn't mean. And everybody has great fears. And, and we understand that people kind of like, are first a bit surprised because it's not a common model, but we're really trying to do the right thing here. And we think this is a model that might have a lot of benefits for companies as well, 
So we kind of hope that this will be more common in the future, or at least we're risking it and seeing where we can take this. Curious what you mean by doubling down. It could be the risk portion of it or just the fact that something indicated that you should have such a belief in this direction that you're doing it. I think it's kind of both. Like we really see open source as kind of the driving force and how, how to get software out there and also what is making us successful. We we always see it like that, like every paying customer has been an open source user in the beginning. That is really where everything is starting. And even the salespeople understand that, even though, of course, the salespeople never want anything in the open source space. They would love to have everything uh, closed source and commercial. Uh, but <laughs> they're kind of understanding. Jerks. Yeah. They're kind of understanding <laughs> that, that model, like how, how do you get where you are right now and how can you take it further? Uh, so Got to get paid, you know? Well, if and and they have like fifty percent of their salary being based on what they're selling. Yeah, you want you want to, you know as a salesperson, you you want no ceiling on your revenue opportunity. Uh, you know how much money you can make because uh, when you're in sales, usually you risk. You know what is often a salary. You usually get some sort of stipend or a base or a draw is what the common term is used for, and it's usually very small, nothing you can actually rely upon. So. In that position, you're like, I don't want any restrictions. If I can sell a lot, don't restrict me. I'll sell a lot. If I can sell very little, well, then you fire me or I will starve, one of the two. Totally. Um, believe me, we, we commonly have these discussions and engineering would, of course, want to make everything open source because, well, who doesn't? And sales obviously doesn't or wouldn't want to make anything open source. And we, we try to or we need to strike the right balance. And it's, of course, an ongoing discussion. But I think we're doing the right thing here. Um, we see um, how that develops over time, of course. Well, when it comes to security, I think that's uh, – you mentioned it earlier when you first started to to share the details here. But I think it's so crucial. You hear so often tooling or something being in the security space and you can't get access to the source code. Jared, it kind of reminded me of the – you know, which is totally opposite of this, but – Third-party CSS not being safe, where Jake Archibald said, you know, the real problem is thinking that third-party content is safe. You know, in this case, it's third-party code or dependencies. And so many issues, uh, you know, stem from a dependency that becomes, you know, uh, what's the term for it? Uh, Not safe anymore. Unsafe. Unsafe. (laughs) That's not the one I was looking for, but that works in this case here. But, you know, you can't trust it anymore. It becomes compromised. That's the word. Um. You know, and and you've got that in your code base. You don't even know it, but the point is that you can see these because you have opened them up. And it's it sounds like you also have issues open, but you're not looking for people to contribute, but you want people to be able to see the code, scrutinize the code, maybe even file bug issues and or patches that may be security related. Is that correct? Oh, totally. Um, and especially if you're a more advanced user and you run into an issue, you, the first thing you might want to do is like just check out the source code and see like, okay, this is, this is what it's doing and this is what it's supposed to do. And then you can say, oh, either I'm using this wrong or no, there is a bug and I can report that bug. And then I can see the progress and I can be part of that discussion. And it's all on GitHub where it's like much more uh, in, kind of inclusive in the, the regular process you have around everything uh, you do in the open source space. And we want to give people uh, the opportunity to participate in that as well and just be able to show like, hey, this is what we are doing and this is when this release is coming out. Otherwise, that communication was kind of very complicated because then you would have like had somebody to always communicate that like, oh, we have fixed the bug and it will be in that patch level release. 
Um, and then you shouldn't forget anybody. Otherwise, people are surprised like, oh, is my, my issue now fixed in that release or not? And it's just like creating an unnecessary barrier that we're trying to get rid of. Well, for the developers out there that are like thinking, okay, so how big is Elastic? You know, great, you got to make money, but how much? Why don't we share with them how many people you got in your company so they can kind of, uh, you know, quantify that number, so to speak. It's changing every day. We're, I think, like 820, or maybe we're already 830 today. Um, right now, we are growing by 50 a month, um, which is an insane number. Um, if anybody uh, is looking for a job, by the way, uh, just shoot me a message. I'm happy to connect you. Um, uh, we have for pretty much any technology that you can imagine. Uh, we're not just Java. We have lots of other stuff as well uh, and lots of open positions. What's driving that growth? Obviously, uh, we have more and more products um, and we're getting more into that solution space. So that is the engineering side. But of course, since... Uh, we have all these solutions, you always also need to sell them. So we have also a lot of sales and marketing people there. How has your community responded to this new direction? You have your customers, you have lots of users of the open source uh, project, even just on the Elasticsearch repo on GitHub, there's 983 contributors over time. Now, maybe with 820, you know, maybe you could have a lot of those be your employees, but surely there's other companies using this, other individuals, and now this change for um, this direction of open, but not open source, um, proprietary open code things that are going to be in the repos and this this vision that's been laid out. I know there's been some confusion, but has there been a backlash? Have people received it pretty well? What's the response been? I think partially uh, confusion. And partially people are waiting since the, the final license is not out there and they don't really know what it means. Um, that, yeah, I, I guess we, we will get the final vote once that is being done. On the other hand, if you're an existing user, nothing is changing. Like what has been out in the open source space is staying out in the open source space. We're just adding more so or viewable source code. Uh, so if you want to take a look behind the scenes for those features, that is totally possible in the future. So we're not taking anything away. We're just adding more features. And I think a lot of people care more about the, the free part than the open source part, to be honest. Um, for those, not too much will change in that area. That's an interesting question, Jared, like to, to consider the response, obviously. I didn't think to ask that. That seems like the obvious thing to ask, which is like, okay, you've got this many employees. You must have a large customer base. What's the response? And... It looks like this announcement was made at Elasticon. Is that right? Is that how you say that? Elasticon or Elasticon? We normally say Elasticon, right? It's our okay, annual cool. conference. Okay. And maybe it was just timing, but but uh, have you asked or does any are you aware of why you would announce this change prior to the uh, the end user license agreement being available? You know, because I mean, you said confusion. It seems to me that maybe some of the confusion can be. Uh, guarded, I guess, or just you know, not there at all. If the whole deal is clear, and that's the missing piece. A, you want to announce something at your annual conference, and we really wanted to to put that out there and and show uh, our commitment to openness. On the other hand, since there is not that much uh, prior art there, um, kind of just finding the right legal text is a lot of work. 
and we just were not there on the legal side uh, for having the text. We were aware that, well, it would might have been better or probably would have been better if we had the final text there. But on the other hand, speed in that regard could really kill if you just put out something that is not foolproof or could does have some loopholes um, that would totally impact the company. So we really want to draft something that is substantial there and is doing the right thing. And it's kind of like the, the engineering discussion is very interesting. It's like, oh, so since you have the part of the source code that is Apache 2 licensed, like maybe you could just modify the Apache 2 license code to circumvent the, the license check for the commercial part. Maybe you could do stuff like that. And this needs a lot of um, kind of discussion both between engineering and the legal side. On the other hand, we, we don't want to make this too restrictive to scare anybody off. Um, so we are really trying to, to walk a fine line of doing the right thing. And unfortunately, that takes some time. And it's really a back and forth. I think it's important maybe to put in perspective the, the reasons why. You know, there's there's a lot of confusion on the details, but the why is usually helps everyone understand the direction and maybe even gain some trust, right? The why is because you need to be a profitable company and survive and continue to have the necessary employees to innovate and to deliver services, right? I mean, that's the that's the why, right? I mean, that's not the why for, for opening it, yes, but that's the why why we need to have like commercial features that you can continue to get cool features uh, and we can innovate on the products. Uh, but we're also, like we said, uh, committed to this openness and it's just like finding the right balance. And we would love to see that we're not, the last ones to do something like that where you have a commercial offering uh, because, well, once you have a company, you need that. Uh, but also having this open part and not be like, I don't know, Oracle where you just cannot see anything in the source code and then something doesn't work out, you write to support and then you wait for some answer from support and maybe it's not giving you the, the right answer of how something is supposed to work. Whereas once you have the open code approach, um, if you're knowledgeable enough, you just look up how, how is this working behind the scenes. I, I can just figure it out like in 10 minutes myself and see what is going on. And I think there is kind of a tremendous value in that as well. If you don't go this route, it sounds like you referenced RethinkDB earlier. So it sounds like you're familiar with that story that, you know, if, if, not, if not sustainable, you know, that Elastic could see a downturn in, in employment. That means lost jobs. That means... Heck, you know, that could potentially mean, you know, we see you on Patreon at some point, you know, rather than finding ways to sustain yourselves in ways that meet your own business model. Right. Not that that's going to happen, but that's an extreme case. You know what I'm trying to say is that we see open source projects and or products attempting to, and in a lot of cases, succeeding and sustaining through open collective, Patreon, direct support. Obviously, you're a company, so that may be slightly different. But the point is, is that if you don't find a way to deliver these things you want to in a commercially viable way, then it means lack of success. That it means you know company failure potentially. Yeah, and it's in nobody's interest to shut down a project like it happened to RethinkDB. I, I mean, yeah, the code is available on GitHub, but I, I checked just a month ago or so, and I think like pretty much nothing is happening there. So. This is, I guess, pretty much the end of it. And nobody is benefiting from that because it was, it was a great product and it was also widely loved from what I understood. So that's yeah. not what you want to do. We'll put in the show notes. We did the, uh, what was it, the future of everything to be, Jared? Was that the last episode we did? 
It's a great show. I mean, it, it kind of end capped the chronicling of of this podcast covering everything DB, which was two episodes with Slava. And I can't recall the person we spoke with right now. That's right. Mike Glukowski, episode 266, The Future of Rethink DB. Yeah, I got the title, but the person I forgot. Mike was was great to have on. He greatly shared the backstory, the founding portion of this, and then ultimately how the IP was um, you know, bought by the Linux Foundation and what that meant. And yeah, that was, so we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Philip, anything else we can cover here? What... Uh, Maybe what's what's next? So this is probably the hottest topic in your company and in your projects. Where, where can we go from here? What's best to cover to close out the show? So continuing kind of like the open theme uh, is we're, we're doing Google Summer of Code this year for the first time. It's sponsored by Google and organized by Google. It's basically open source organizations can apply uh, to run student projects and a student will then implement some feature for the project in three months and Google is paying the student for that. And that has been going on for, I don't know, I don't even know which year we're in, uh, but 10 plus years uh, from what I remember because I think I was a Google Summer of Code student like nine or 10 years ago um, and participated in the project. And now we are trying to be there as, or we are there as an organization as well. And we're currently selecting the students, so unfortunately, it's over for this year. Uh, but if you're a student and you want to work in open source during the summer and don't, uh, I don't know, uh, serve drinks or anything like that, uh, then it's a great opportunity. And keep your eyes open in February for, for the call for that. And then you can see more than 100 open source product projects where you can apply for either ideas they are putting out or you can come with your own project ideas. And if you're being selected, you can work on that code for three months during summer and being paid by Google. So that's kind of a very nice thing for students to do. I can highly recommend that. And we also see that as being part of that open source ecosystem uh, and the openness that we're participating in initiatives like that and try to bring on students into the projects and like just the, the, the new generation into open source and help them getting started. You were a student in that uh in this uh, Google Summer of Code? I was a student in, uh, in, in Google Summer of Code. Uh, I, I worked on a PHP-based CMS system uh, called Silverstripe, which nobody knows because it's from New Zealand. That was kind of like my start into the open source world, uh, where I worked on, on a project and then I kind of kept ties with the project. And then two years later, three years later, that, that organization uh, was a mentor organization and then I was a mentor uh, with them as well. And that's kind of like a, a common topic that... You bring on, on people or students as uh, on the student side and then they continue as the mentors or as, as we now do on the organizational level, uh, driving that to kind of help the next generation of strive in the open source ecosystem. I'm looking at their homepage, 13,000 plus students, 108 countries, 13 years, 608 open source organizations and 33 million plus lines of code over Google Summer of Code's history. Pretty impressive statistics and what an impact it's had over time. Well, Philip, it was a uh, thank you so much for, you know, schooling us on the use cases of Elasticsearch, how a relational database like Postgres can leverage it, you know, potentially even how you can bridge the gaps across various different vectors. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing us uh, that backstory because that certainly educated me quite a bit. And the fact that 
this is open source. It began as open source and the direction of your company is so great. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, thank you for being a fan of the show. And thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And I hope you can fix all your search problems. Let me know if you need a hand. We need a hand. All right. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of The Change Log. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor, share it with a friend, hit that favorite button, add it to a list, tell somebody about this show. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, Rollbar, DigitalOcean, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast and fix things around here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. Check them out and support this show. The ChangeLog is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is done by Tim Smith. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLog.com or on Overcast or Apple Podcast or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Search for us. You'll find us. That's it. It's done. We'll see you next week.